Hello, this is Mike, and this is Mike Dell's World. And I got something interesting in email today, so I figured I'd put out a short podcast. Since uh, I worked in the Air Force and had lots of experience with all kinds of things, and uh, yeah, maybe a little bit with the, with the uh, subject of this one, but this is from a guy named Harry. I'm not going to divulge anything further, uh, you know. But anyway... Uh, here's here's his uh, SR-71 Blackbird story. Let's see. This was once a highly sensitive program at Norton Air Force Base, California. SR-71 Blackbird. In April of 1986, following the attack on American soldiers in Berlin, President Reagan ordered the bombing of Muammar Gaddafi's terrorist camps in Libya. My duty was to fly over Libya, take photos, recording the damage our F-111s had infected. Inflicted. <laughs> anyway, see, I'm reading this, so, uh, eh, you know, I'm going to have a little stuff, but uh, I was involved in the F-111 attack. Uh, anyway, back to Harry's story. Gaddafi had established a line of death, a territorial marking across the Gulf of Sidra, swearing to shoot down any intruder that crossed the boundary. On the morning of April 15th, I rocketed past the line at 2,125 miles per hour. I was piloting the SR-71 spy plane, the world's fastest jet, accompanied by a Marine Major, Walt, the aircraft's reconnaissance systems officer, or RSO. We had crossed into Libya and were approaching our final turn over the bleak desert landscape when Walt informed me that he was receiving missile launch signals. I quickly increased our speed, calculating the time it would take for the weapons, most likely an SA-2 or an SA-4 surface-to-air missile capable of Mach 5, to reach our altitude. I estimated that we could beat the rocket-powered missiles, to the turn and stayed our course, betting our lives on the plane's performance. After several agonizingly long seconds, we made the turn and blasted towards the Mediterranean. You might want to pull back, Walt suggested. It was then I noticed that I still had the throttles full forward and the plane was flying a mile every 1.6 seconds, well above our Mark 3.2 limit. It was the fastest we would ever fly. I pulled the throttles to idle just south of Sicily, but we still overran the refueling tanker awaiting us over Gibraltar. Scores of significant aircraft have been produced in the hundred years of flight following the achievements of the Wright brothers, which we celebrate last December. Actually, it was a couple of years ago. Uh, editor's note. <laughs> Aircraft such as the Boeing 707, the F-86 Sabre jet, and the P-51 Mustang are among the important machines that have flown our skies. But the SR-71, also known as the Blackbird, stands alone as a significant co contributor to the Gulf War victory and is the fastest plane ever. Only 93 Air Force pilots ever steered the sled, as we called our aircraft. The SR-71 was the brainchild of Kelly Johnson, the famed Lockheed designer who designed the P-38, the F-104 Starfighter, and the U-2. After the Soviets shot down Gary Powers' U-2 in 1960, Johnson began, began to develop an aircraft that would fly three miles higher and five times faster. 
spy plane and still capable. Oh, there we go. <laughs> See, I'm reading here. But anyways, it would fly five times faster than the U-2 is what he's saying here. And still capable, capable of photographing your license plate. However, flying at 2,000 miles an hour would create intense heat on the aircraft's skin. Lockheed engineers used titanium alloy to construct more than 90% of the SR-71, creating special tools and machining procedures to hand-build each of the 40 aircraft. Special heat-resistant fuel oil, or fuel, oil and hydraulic fluids would function at 85,000 feet and higher also had to be developed. In 1962, the first Blackbird successfully flew, and in 1960, Sear, 66, 60 Sear, <laughs> anyway, 1966, the same year I graduated from high school, this is Harry talking, not me, the Air Force began flying operational SR-71 missions. I came to the program in 1983 with a sterling record and a recommendation from my commander. Completing the week-long interview and meeting, Walt, my partner for the next four years, he would ride four feet behind me, working all the cameras, radios, and electronic, electronic jamming equipment. I joked that if we were ever captured, he was the spy and I was just the driver. He told me to keep the pointy end forward. We trained for a year, flying out of Beale Air Force Base, California, Kadena Air Force Base in Okinawa, and RAF Mildenhall in England. Our typical training mission, we would take off near Sacramento, refuel over Nevada, accelerate into Montana, obtain high mock over Colorado, turn right over New Mexico, speed across the Los Angeles Basin, run up the West Coast, turn right at Seattle, and then return to Beetle. Total flight time, 2 hours, 40 minutes. One day, high above Arizona, we were monitoring radio traffic of all the mortal airplanes below us. First, a Cessna pilot asked the air traffic controllers to check his ground speed. 90 knots, air traffic controller replied. A Bonanza soon made the same request. 120 on the ground, was the reply. To our surprise, a Navy F-18 came over the radio with a ground speed check. I knew exactly what he was doing. Of course, he had a ground speed indicator in the cockpit, but he wanted to let all the bug smashers in the valley know what real speed was. Dusty 42, we show you at 620 on the ground, ATC responded. The situation was just too ripe. I heard the click of Walt's mic button in the rear, rear seat, and in the most innocent voice, Walt startled the controller by asking for a ground speed check from 81,000 feet, clearly above the controlled airspace. In a cool, professional voice, the controller replied, Aspen 20, I show you at 1,982 knots on the ground. We didn't hear anything else on the ground, or on that frequency, uh, all the way to the coast. The Blackbird always showed, showed us something new, each aircraft possessing its own unique personality. In time, we realized we were flying a national treasure. When we taxied out of our revetments for takeoff, people took notice. Traffic congested near the airfield fences because everyone wanted to see the, and hear the mighty SR-71. You could not be a part of this program and not come to love this airplane. Slowly, she revealed her secrets as we earned her trust. 
One moonless night, I was flying a routine training mission over the Pacific. I wondered what the sky would look like from 84,000 feet from if the cockpit lighting were dark. While heading home on a straight course, I slowly turned down all of the lighting, reducing the glare and revealing the night sky. Within seconds, I turned the light back up, fearful the jet would know somehow and punish me. My desire to see the sky overruled my caution. I dimmed the lighting again. To my amazement, I saw light outside my window. As my eyes adjusted to the view, I realized the brilliance was the broad expanse of the Milky Way, now, gleaming stri now a gleaming stripe across the sky. Where dark spaces in the sky had usually existed, there is now dense clusters of sparkling stars. Shooting stars flashed across the canvas every few seconds. It was like fireworks display with no sound. I knew I had to get my eyes back on the instrument, and reluctantly I brought my attention back inside. To my surprise, the cockpit lighting still off, I could see every single gauge lit by starlight. In the plane's mirrors, I could see the eerie shine of my gold spacesuit incandescently illuminated in the celestial glow. <laughs> I stole one last glance out the window. Despite our speed, we seemed still before the heavens humbled in the radiance of a much greater power. For those few moments, I felt part of something far more significant than anything we were doing in the plane. The sharp sound of Walt's voice on the radio brought me back to the tasks at hand, and I prepared for our descent. The SR-71 was an expensive aircraft to operate. The most, ex the most significant cost was tanker support, and in 1990, confronted with budget cutbacks, the Air Force retired the SR-71. The SR-71 served six presidents, protecting America for a quarter century. Unbeknownst to most of the country, the plane flew over North Vietnam, Red China, North Korea, the Middle East, South Africa, Cuba, Nicaragua, Iran, Libya, and the Falkland Islands. On a weekly basis, the SR-71 kept watch over every Soviet nuclear submarine and mobile missile site and all of their troop movements. It was a key factor in winning the Cold War. I'm proud to say I flew about 500 hours in this aircraft. I knew her well. She gave way to no plane, proudly dragging her sonic boom through enemy backyards with great impunity. She defeated every missile, outran every MiG, and always brought us home. In the first 100 years of manned flight, no aircraft was more remarkable. And that was sent to me by a, a friend of mine, uh, Ray, who knows I was in the Air Force, and it... Uh, Come along with a, a few pictures. I don't know whether I'll get to post all those pictures on uh, on the website, but uh, anyway, that was uh, very cool. And that reminds me, you know, the f one of the first uh, weeks I was at my permanent duty station after all the all the schooling, I got stationed at Mountain Home, Idaho, which was an alternate landing uh, strip for the SR-71s out of Beetle. It just so happened uh, my probably third or fourth day of duty at my new duty station, we had an SR-71 in the hangar. And you heard, you know, you heard Harry there, well, you heard me say it, but uh, Harry wrote that, you know, those airplanes were hand-built with, uh, with really screwball titanium panels. Well, the one thing he didn't say is, is when that airplane was full of fuel on the ground, 
it would, I mean, it's just pouring out every little crack and crevice underneath the plane. It really made a mess because, you know, the tanks would not hold fuel unless the thing was airborne. Uh, the airplane would take off and literally have to catch a tanker when it got close to, uh, you know, its altitude. And then as soon as it uh, refueled on the tanker, it would accelerate up to high speeds to get the skin to uh, expand with the heat so that it would hold its fuel. So anyway, this we had one in our hangar uh, when I was there, and one of my first jobs in the Air Force at my first duty station was to uh, clean up uh, leaking fuel under an SR-71. <laughs> and I was pretty proud to do it. So anyway, that was my little uh, quickie podcast for today. I, I got this email, and usually I don't read that kind of stuff, so please don't send me all that. Uh, you know, cool uh, Air Force stories are, are okay, but uh, <laughs> anyway. So that'll uh, conclude uh, Mike Dell's World number 94. And, uh, what is today? Today is the uh, 10th of September, uh, nine, or 2019. Wow, where have I been for the last eight years? Uh, anyway, 2008. <laughs> Catch you later. This podcast is a member of the Blueberry Network. Blueberry. No ease. That's Blueberry, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Blueberry dot com.